Well, good morning, everyone. We've been having an enthralling series called Eating with Jesus. And today this series reaches a new peak of historical and spiritual drama. That's because the Last Supper is without doubt the most important meal in the history of the world. To this day, it inspires the lives of untold millions of people whenever they receive the bread and wine at a communion service. And so let's immediately plunge in and highlight six immortal words of Jesus in remembrance of me. It's the most obeyed command of all time. It's been astonishingly every continent and in every century since Jesus first gave it to his disciples <clears throat> and through the power of the Holy Spirit it will live on today in the obedient hearts and minds for those who come up to receive communion at St. Peter's this morning just as it will live on in the hearts and minds of millions and millions of communicants in churches of all denominations on this Sunday morning across the planet and so we're now looking at one of the pivotal moments, pivotal turning points in our faith. We're looking at a life-changing, game-changing, world-changing example of eating with Jesus. And it's as fresh and as relevant today as it was when Jesus sat down in that well-prepared upper room to eat his final meal with his disciples. Let's look today at one or two vital questions. <coughs> What exactly happened at the Last Supper? What message did Jesus give to his disciples at the Last Supper? And what was the effect of that message at the time? And what should be the effect of the Last Supper on our lives today? <clears throat> Just in passing as an aside, the Last Supper has had a tremendous impact on Christian imagination through the arts, and through music down the centuries. There have been numerous terrific works of art portraying it. And here at St. Peter's, we have a magnificent reproduction of what is widely claimed to be the greatest ever painting of the Last Supper. It's by Leonardo da Vinci, painted in 1493. And it's rather too far away for some of you at least to be able to scrutinize it <coughs> today. But perhaps you might wish after the service to go and up close and look at its artistic riches. Of course you'll all know that it's a work of imagination, a work of imaginary creation by Leonardo. But just on a humorous note, I think you'll enjoy the story of why one face in that painting is not imaginary. It's the face of a real person. And this little comedy began uh, in the 15th century when Leonardo was commissioned to do the painting by a wealthy monastery in Milan, the monastery of Santa Maria. But that monastery had a notoriously bad-tempered prior who was in charge of it. And he used to grumble and complain that this painting was taking far, far too long. Incensed by this insult to his artistic genius, Leonardo responded that the delay was only being caused because he was having difficulty finding 
a sinister and villainous enough face with which to portray Judas. And Leonardo then said to the impatient prayer, well, yes, I can get this masterpiece finished quickly, but to do so, I'll have to paint the face of Judas quickly, and I'll need a model, so I'll use the model of your face. <laughs> and that's what happened. And as you see him, he's the fourth on the left, Judas, rather sinister figure. Well, as the Italian saying goes, se non è vero e bene trovato. Even if it's not true, it's a nice story. <laughs> but let's move from art to the truth about the Last Supper. And look at that question. What actually happened? What were the precise words spoken by Jesus? Now, there's some problems here, minor problems, but they've spilt a great deal of theological ink according to some squabbling scholars. And one of the leading theologians with great expertise on St. Luke's Gospel is one of my old tutors, Professor G.B. Caird of Oxford University. And he wrote this about today's reading. And I quote, Luke's account of the Last Supper is a scholar's paradox and a beginner's nightmare, for it raises problems in every department of New Testament scholarship and has provided the basis for a welter of conflicting theories. Hmm. Well, as Evelyn Waugh used to say in one of his novels, up to a point, Lord Copper, because there are variations, yes, between the accounts of the gospel writers and between early manuscripts. And this isn't really a problem, because they're easily explained by one word, time, or the passage of time. Just sometimes need to remember that all four Gospels were written 70 years or more after the death of Jesus. And although this oral tradition still alive in the Middle East today of handing down information by eyewitness stories mouth to mouth did produce reliable accounts, inevitably after 70 years of storytelling down the generations, some discrepancies occurred. For example, Matthew has a tremendous riff about Jesus clearly unmasking Judas as his betrayer during the supper, whereas other gospel writers leave the identity of the betrayer as an unanswered question, a mystery. And St. John does not mention the Last Supper at all, although some parts of his accounts, which we may come to later, almost certainly do describe the same meal. Now, scholars grind out books on these variations, but honestly, they are nitpickers par excellence. Just think about trying to reconstruct a dinner party conversation in your home 70 years after the dinner took place. <laughs> Almost impossible. Of course, there'd be many different variations. And to just give one personal model, modern example, um, many years ago, you're mostly too young to remember it, I was arrested along with the editor of the Sunday Telegraph and tried under the Official Secrets Act in the Old Bailey uh, about <coughs> an allegedly re uh, released secret. And the whole case turned on what was said at a dinner party at Yorkshire, Yorkshire about the warnings or non-warnings or the document or the non-document. And we had six completely honest witnesses came in to the Old Bailey to give evidence. And they all gave conflicting stories um, about what had been said. So not unexpectedly, the judge ruled and the jury found there was no case ready to answer. And so 
editor of the Sunday Telegraph and I walked free, which was just as well, because I wouldn't be preaching here today without this happening. But it's just a reminder that variations in what happened at a dinner party are inevitable. However, don't get worried about this, because there is one account of the Last Supper which wins the prize for accuracy and authenticity, but it doesn't appear in the Gospels. It appears in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, and that was written a mere 25 years after the event. And I'm going to ask us now to look at these verses from 1 Corinthians, and we're going to ask our excellent reader, Betty, to come back and read it for us. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and then he had given thanks. He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Thanks, Betty. <clears throat> now, there are two good reasons for believing that these words from 1 Corinthians are the authentic, accurate account of what was said at the Last Supper. First reason, which I've already mentioned, is that they were written down only 25 years or so after the Last Supper, and therefore, just because it was within the same window of time and living memory, it was likely to be more accurate. But secondly, there's a rather fascinating linguistic reason for this authenticity. And here, for a brief moment, I need to take you to the original Greek language in which the epistle is written. Now, preachers who talk about the Greek translations are usually crushing bores, but just occasionally <clears throat> the Greek powerfully illustrates something, and it does here. Just look at Paul's opening sentence. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. I might just pause for a moment, anyone with an inquiring mind, to say, how did Paul receive it from the Lord, since he was not present at the Lord's Last Supper? In a vision? In a dream? In some sacred moment of revelation through the power of the Holy Spirit? We don't know. But Paul says he received it from the Lord, so we know he did receive it from the Lord. And then Paul goes on, what I also passed on to you. <clears throat> now the Greek word for passing on here is paradikwe. And this, in use, is an almost sacred word <coughs> in New Testament or ancient Greek. It's quite different from the colloquial reasons like passing the salt or passing on the news. No, this verb is far more significant. It's really reserved for um, very significant moments, such as passing the torch from one generation to another, or passing on the family estate to my son, or even passing on the crown. Paradiquo is a verb reserved for those sort of 
supremely important, sometimes sacred moments, a, my a mystical transfer of power and of knowledge. And that's why I think Paul chose it, <coughs> entirely appropriate, to be used passing on this great news of the Last Supper to the Corinthians. <coughs> Just hearken again to these memorable words. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And it is these sacred words, paradiquoed or passed on solemnly to the Corinthians and other early Christians in a holy way, it's these words which have been passed on to us and are still being passed on by us to our fellow Christians today. So here we come to the heart of what happened at the Last Supper. Jesus was passing on a sacred ceremony, a sacred form of words, and a holy sacrament, which is at the heart of our service today, as we come to this divine command, do this in remembrance of me. Some denominations, notably the Catholics, ring a bell <coughs> at the moment of do this in remembrance of me. St. Peter's a long way from being a bells and smells church. <laughs> but we should nevertheless think about why these traditions have grown up and how they can be used. Um, and I used to regularly take home communion, something I love doing to people who are sick or dying. And there was a wonderful old lady who came to this church a couple of times called Jane Williams, the mother of the Archbishop of Canterbury. If he's the archbishop here, he won't mind me t telling this story. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, <clears throat> Jane used to love home communions. And Jesse, who often comes to me when I make home visits, used to take a little baby bell and ring it vigorously after the words, do this in remembrance of me. And I remember Jane saying, that bell fills me with holy joy. And it can do. But before we get carried away, overboard with holy joy. We need to look at another aspect of the Last Supper. Because there was a dark and disturbing presence at the Last Supper in the form of Judas the betrayer. And it made it, the disciples extremely uncomfortable after Jesus said one of them was going to betray him. As our reading from Luke says, and I quote, they began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this? And if you look at Leonardo's great painting, you see it very quickly, even from the back of the church, that this is not a picture of some calm, peaceful Notting Hill dinner party. It's people arguing, gesticulating, having a row, what it was all about. Well, who is it going to betray me? I think they were asking. And some of you will know John Sebastian Bach's great oratorio, The Matthew Passion. And you will then remember the explosive chorus that breaks out halfway through it. Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? It's a brilliantly evocative portrayal in music of the disciples arguing and questioning among themselves which of them could possibly be the betrayer of their Lord and Savior. It was a most distressing and upsetting question, but it's still relevant today because it's an uncomfortable reality that at almost every communion service reenacting the Last Supper, there is likely to be someone present who will go away afterwards and betray Jesus.
They were betrayed by sinning. They were betrayed by breaking their promises to honor the remembrance of Jesus. They were turning to bad behavior or drugs or demons of one sort or another, or even by chasing to the exclusion of Jesus the modern equivalent of 30 pieces of silver. Now such sins, such failings are not of course done in remembrance of me. They are yielding to Satan's temptations rather than honoring Jesus' examples. And the Last Supper reminds us, as indeed contemporary life reminds us, that all around us there is a continuous cosmic struggle between good and evil, between the teachings of Jesus and the temptations of the world, between darkness and light. So it's as well to acknowledge that there was a dark side to the Last Supper, present in the original upper room, and it may be present in our own lives today. But for we, the silent, the obedient majority of worshippers, seekers and believers here today who receive the bread and wine, as we strive to imitate Christ and strive to imitate his great command, do this in remembrance of me. What might we be expecting? Well, for a start, we might be expecting to feel his presence, to feel the power of the Holy Spirit. Or we may be blessed by some sort of revelation of the kind that was experienced at the First Supper. First Supper, those of you who are awake may be startled by that reference, Um, but by the First Supper, I mean the first supper after the resurrection, the supper at Emmaus, which took place three days after the crucifixion at the end of a walk to Emmaus. Many of you will know the story, beautifully told, in the final chapter of Luke's Gospel. It describes how two followers of Jesus, dejected and downhearted by the death and crucifixion of their Lord and Master, were walking sorrowfully away from Jerusalem towards a village called Emmaus, when mysteriously and unexpectedly they were joined on the walk by a stranger who fell into conversation with them and began to inspire them, teaching them from the scriptures that the crucifixion was not the end and the Messiah, the Christ, would rise in glory. It wasn't clear whether this message totally went home but it certainly seemed to stir them up a bit, because when they reached Emmaus, the two original walkers <coughs> said to the unknown stranger, look, it's late in the evening, why don't you come and stay in with us? So they went probably to some inn and sat down to have a meal together. And all of a sudden, the stranger took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. And immediately, their eyes were opened, and they recognized Jesus, who immediately vanished from their sight. So these two men, who now understood the power and glory of the risen Christ, rushed back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples how they had recognized Jesus in the breaking of the bread. The first supper after the resurrection of Emmaus should always be seen, I think, as a supernatural sequel to the Last Supper. And this sequel can be with us today, right this morning at St. Peter's, as some of us, perhaps many of us, 
will recognize Jesus in the breaking of the bread. Because when we recognize Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we are on our journey of seeing and believing. We are on our journey of knowing that we need to be continuously fed and nourished by him, by the bread of life he offers to us. The bread of life is no fast food, junk food, quick fix, snacks of the kind offered by McDonald's or Kentucky Fried Chicken. No, this is the bread of heaven. If you want to explain in full, turn to John chapter 6, a marvelous passage describing the meaning of the bread of heaven. Perhaps Jesus said that at the Last Supper, we don't know. But this anyway is the bread of life. It was given to us by Jesus himself, given to us as our vital spiritual nourishment to feed us, to fulfill us, and to energize us in his service all the way from here to eternity. So finally, let's return to these all-important words from our gospel reading. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus gave his body as a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. His sacrifice is symbolized in the bread and the wine. And every time we eat it or partake of it, we become part of Jesus and he becomes part of us. We dwell in him and he dwells in us. And this is the great message of the Last Supper, confirmed, strengthened, sanctified by the First Supper at Emmaus. So if we can obey his command, do this in remembrance of me. We feed on Jesus, and he feeds us. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, and by the power of his holy example, let us of this communion today be inspired to live new lives in Christ, to feed on Jesus and with Jesus, and to dwell in him as he dwells in us. Amen.